0: 16, Mark chapter 16. If you're visiting with us and using a pew Bible, um, you can use that if you'd like and open to page 853, page 853 in the pew Bible if you're using that this morning as well. As you make your way there, let's pray and then we'll jump into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is worthy of our worship, that, Lord, that we would praise your name. Your name is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, help us now as we come to your word. Lord, as we read of the resurrection of your son, that we'd reflect on the good news and what that means for us. Yes, this event happened, but how does it impact us? How should it change the way we live? Lord, help us to understand this, and through this, Lord, make us more like Jesus, or perhaps bring us to Jesus and save us from our sins. We pray in your Son's name, amen. Mark chapter 16, I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away this stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Last night, my wife and I, after we put the kids to bed and were settled down after a busy day of working outside, it was beautiful yesterday. And we had our bowls of ice cream, and we're just relaxing there on the couch, and, oh, let's find something to watch. You know, like anything, you have Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus, and you can't find anything, right? For 20 minutes, we flipped around and couldn't decide a show to land on. And so uh, we opened up the good old Fallback, PBS, see if there are any interesting documentaries on there, and there was one on Monopoly, and we are kind of nerdy like that. We said, let's give it a shot. So we started the documentary. And 10 minutes later, as we are both looking at our phones, not even paying attention to the documentary, (laughs) we said, okay, this is really boring. We're not going to watch this. (laughs) So we shut it off. The idea of Monopoly is a game where you try and barter and you purchase and you accumulate land and property and buildings. And the point is to get as much money and put everybody else out of business. And one of the key things in Monopoly is the Monopoly money, right? We are all familiar with Monopoly money, the small, uh, photocopied papers, different colors, different amounts. And I remember as a kid, because I never actually fully played Monopoly, it was just in our house, right? Maybe that's how Monopoly is at your house. You never actually play it. It's just there in the closet. But as a kid, you'd find those bills, that money, and you're like, I'm rich. Five-year-old me was like, and dollars it's monopoly money right that's often used in a derogatory term well oh, that's monopoly money what does that mean it means that it's it's not really true or real you can't walk into Casey's or to Quickstar and say here is $500 monopoly money and I'll take a lot of everything right <laughs> or maybe one tank of gas it depends you know what you want to buy <laughs> monopoly money is it's not good it, it's it's an imitation it's fake it, in the end it's just paper now you contrast that with a real hundred dollar bill and you walk into a gas station say i'd like to buy this this or this and then okay yes here we go here's your change on your way the validity the truthfulness the realness of what you're trying to buy with the the monopoly money or real money one is false and fake and And really, you can't use it. But the other is the real deal. So you spend it. You use it. What point am I trying to make in this? Is that monopoly money is fake. And really, you can't do anything with it. Whereas true cash money, you can. It makes a big difference what you do with what you have in your hand. If you had a $100 bill for monopoly money, you have nothing. You have a $100 bill with Benjamin Franklin on it, you have something. As we come to the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning, which has been celebrated for over 2,000, close to 2,000 years, and as people have questioned the resurrection throughout the ages, the idea is this. If it's fake, the resurrection is pointless. If the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity should just be thrown out the window. But if the resurrection truly happened, my friend, we have a $100 bill in our hand it makes all the difference in the world about whether or not Christ was truly raised from the dead. If he wasn't, live your life however you'd like. If he has been raised from the dead, there are some serious implications from that. Our big idea this morning from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, is this. Is that the resurrection of Christ, him being raised from the dead, validates his own words, the words of Christ. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're not going to learn anything here this morning that you probably already haven't learned. If you've been around church or grown up in a community that is very centered around Christianity, you know exactly what happened at the resurrection. You're not going to learn any new information. But the point is for you to contemplate this morning is I know what happened, I know what the Bible says, but how does that change my life? Why should that impact the way I live? What does it mean for me? In Mark's gospel here, we've come to the conclusion. If you've been attending any length of time here, we started this series in the gospel of Mark in September of 2021. That's a year and a half ago. This is the 52nd sermon from the Gospel of Mark. You might think, man, it took you a year and a half to go 52 weeks. We had other things in there as well. (laughs) But we've walked through the Gospel of Mark. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's been this question of, who is Jesus? Mark has been presenting Jesus to us as the Son of God. But his disciples have been confused about it. The other onlookers have questioned who he is and, and they want him to be their king. Throw off the shackles of Rome. Who is Jesus? Mark has spent his entire gospel presenting Jesus as the suffering servant king, the one who has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. From the disciples, to the crowds, to those he healed, to the demons, to the religious leaders, to the Roman rule, rulers and soldiers. Who is Jesus. And why is he such a big deal? He's a big deal because he is exactly who he says he is. He's the son of man who's come to give his life for sinners like you and I. Now, what are we gonna do about it? In Mark's gospel, the very beginning, Mark 1.1, it says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And throughout the gospel, we have read how Jesus heals people. He performs miracles. He does all of this seeking to serve others. And as though people are confused throughout the gospel, who he is, they don't fully understand. In Mark 15, we looked at last week, this true confession from a Roman soldier nonetheless, where he says, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark 15, verse 39. Everything about Jesus has proven true. And now we are presented with the truth of the resurrection. Mark's account of the resurrection is very simple. If you've read any of the Gospels, they all vary. They don't contradict. They just give different, uh, different insights, different uh, accounts, different uh, nuances to the story. It's like asking your children to tell you what happened. And you ask your four kids, and they give you four very similar yet kind of different stories, but they're all talking about the same thing. It's kind of like that with the Gospel writers. They highlight. They have different information, but they all agree when it comes down to it. Mark's is very short and succinct, eight verses. This is it, the resurrection. And he leaves us hanging with this question. What's gonna happen? Now what? What are we supposed to do with this? Mark, what are you you communicating to us? And that's the question for us. What are we going to do about what we just read? Jesus has been raised from the dead according to what he promised. Now, what are we going to do? So we're going to walk through these eight verses. Then by way of application, we'll have uh, a few application points. So there's not necessarily an outline this morning from the passage. We'll walk through it, and then we'll have three points of of application and questions for us. So let's look here in verse 1 of Mark chapter 16. It says, when the Sabbath was passed. The Sabbath, of course, was the Jewish holy day. The Sabbath is Saturday in our week. And the Sabbath lasted from 6 p.m. or sundown on Friday night through sundown on Saturday. Um, that 24-hour, give or take, period. And this was the holy day of the week for the Jews. They would set this aside. They would not do anything. They would use it as a reflection uh, of worshiping God. And so burials were not allowed on the Sabbath. Interacting with dead bodies would not be allowed on the Sabbath. That's why there was such a rush after Jesus died on the cross to get him down and to get him in a tomb. Even that was hurried and not complete. But all that has passed now. So it's the first day of the week, the other gospel writers record for us, which we would understand to be Sunday. And that tradition has continued on, that Sunday is the first day of the week. Now our minds go to Monday, but truly Sunday is the first day of the week as Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. And so Mary, the mother of James, and Mary Magdalene, and Siloam, these women who have been followers of Jesus throughout his ministry, they've kind of been in the background, they've been supporting his ministry, and they are coming to finish the final uh, uh, things in regards to the burial of Jesus' body. Remember, they would place the body in a small cave wrapped in linen cloths, covered in different spices and perfumes to hide the stench of a decomposing body, decomposing things smell. And so they would cover them in spices and after the body would decompose, they would take the bones, put it in a smaller box and leave it there in the tomb and it would become a family burial tomb through many generations. Jesus was placed in this tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and it was rushed and it was hurried and now the women are coming back. It says they bought spices to anoint the body to go and to finish the burial procedures and as a sign of respect for Jesus. Verse 2, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun has risen, they went to the tomb. So this is Sunday morning, early. Sun's coming up. They went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now these tombs were sealed with large stones. They would be a, a channel cut, uh, kind of across the doorway, and the round, a uh, stone would be rolled into that and it would set there. And this stone would be very large and very heavy. Usually it would take two to three people to move. These women, it's almost a humorous account, right? They have their shopping list and they bought all the spices and they're ready to go to the tomb. And on the way there, they're like, oh, who's going roll, <laughs> to roll away the stone? You've done that before, right? You've gotten everything ready, and you're on your way, and you're like, oh, stink. How am I going to do this, right? How is this going to happen? <laughs> oh, man. And so they have this conversation, and they're thinking, We're not, none of us are strong enough to roll away this stone. What's, hopefully somebody's there. Maybe there's going to be a worker in the garden or among the, among the graves that could help us. And as they are even having this discussion, verse 4, they are walking to this tomb and, and looking up. Perhaps these women are bickering back and forth. Oh, it was your job to figure out the stone mover. Come on. And they look up, and what do they see? They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Mark gives us that wonderful comment. It was very large. It had already been rolled back. Somebody had already been there. Something was happening. They weren't expecting this. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. This language all speaks to the fact that this is an angel. Young men, angels often have this appearance of a young man, and he's dressed in white, and they were alarmed. This language all, all uh, communicates that this is indeed an angel. This is not just an, a normal person, but this is a supernatural being right here. And this angel is seated there, walk in and they are alarmed imagine this how scary this would be or how alarming this would be have you ever walked into the room and not expecting anybody to be in there and you look around and there's somebody seated right there (laughs) or maybe you don't say anything and that person walks in the room and you're just waiting for the right time to say something to scare them right Um, this happens and no offense ladies it often happens with you oh what are you doing how could you you know usually there's a a hit involved there right wives to your husbands um these women walk in and and they're alarmed they're in shock perhaps they're 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 afraid you know what's going on and he said to them in verse 8 do not be alarmed do not be afraid you seek jesus of nazareth he knows exactly who should be in this tomb And he knows exactly who they are seeking. They're seeking Jesus, Jesus who is crucified. He says, he is pointing out exactly who was buried in this tomb. Jesus, the one who is crucified. And this simple statement. He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. He is not here. And he says, see the place where they laid him. In the other Gospels, we read that the linen cloth was folded nicely where he was laid. He's not there. This angel says to the women this simple truth He is not here, he is risen. See the place where they laid him. He's not here. You don't believe me? That's where he should have been. You saw him, you saw where he was buried. Mark records that for us in the end of chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Joseph, saw where he was laid. They saw that he was dead. The centurion on the cross said that he was dead. The people who took him down realized that he was dead. Joseph of Arimathea, as he prepared him for burial, and so did Nicodemus in the other Gospels we read, knew that he was dead. I don't know if you saw this Uh, report, but several weeks ago, a little bit more than a month, at a funeral home in Ankeny. A body was delivered to the funeral home, and it was a lady, I believe, and as she was there at the funeral home, as they were getting things ready, they realized she was still alive. She had not died. Now, generally that doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, but you talk about a headline. They realize this woman's still alive. Now, as Jesus was taken off the cross, the centurion checked that he was dead. you think Joseph of Arimathea would have said, hey, he's alive. Jesus is still alive. No, he was dead. He was placed in the tomb. But, as the angel says to us, he is been raised. In the other Gospels, they include this phrase He has been raised, He is risen, He is not here, just as He has said, as He has foretold. See the place where they laid Him, He is not here. Verse 7, He says to the women, But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. He tells the women that they are to go and they are to tell the disciples. The disciples were Jesus's followers. And they'd been with Jesus for several years. But here at the end, the disciples abandoned Jesus. They ran away for fear of his arrest and what was going to happen. But now Jesus has not abandoned them. He is going to come to his disciples. And specifically, the angel mentions Peter. And why Peter? Because Peter was the disciple who was there in that courtyard that night and denied Jesus three times. It was a specific point of reconciliation, a reminder to Peter that Jesus had not given up on him and that Jesus still had great things for him to do. Go to the disciples, go tell his disciples, tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is the message of the angel. Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. He is not here. Now go and tell his disciples that he's coming to them, specifically Peter, and he's going to be in Galilee because he already told them this, but they didn't believe him or they didn't understand. Go and do this. What a shocking message. What a shocking course of events. Going to a tomb, expecting a dead body, and finding nothing, but you find an angel. Jesus has been raised from the dead, just as he said. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, and trembling, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. That would be an understatement, wouldn't you think? <laughs> that they'd be overcome with this trembling and fear and astonishment. And it says here that they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Remarkably, in Mark's account, he leaves us the readers with the women trembling and astonished, rightfully so at what they just saw, their fear is paralyzing them. In the other gospels, we know the continuing events played out, how uh, Peter and John come running to the tomb and, and Jesus appear, appears to Mary and, and so on and so forth. But in Mark's gospel, we have this synced ending. Now, I'm sure most of your Bibles include here verses 9 through 20. I'm sure it's bracketed, uh, and it has a, a note about some of the early manuscripts not including this passage. There are several reasons for that. The language in this section does not look like Mark's. It doesn't read like Mark's. Those of you who are teachers and you read a paper by a student, you get to know their voice and what they write like and what they what words they use. If you look at Mark's gospel and then you look at these last 11 verses or so, they do not match up. (laughs) There are different words that are used, different phrases that don't seem like Mark. And the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel do not include this section. And so what do we do with these verses here at the end? Well, first of all, there's nothing in these verses that is contradicting any other gospel message. They are, in a sense, just highlights of the other Gospels that most people believe scribes added during the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th century because they didn't like the ending of Mark's Gospel. They felt like it needed a conclusion, right? This cliffhanger. So there's nothing necessarily wrong in this passage here or uh, new or different than any of the other Gospels. I personally don't think it belongs to Mark. Um, Not that there's anything wrong in this passage, this ending passage, but I don't think it's it's Mark's, comes from Mark's hand. I think Mark ended in verse 8, because that's what Mark does. Mark talks, talks, and then just kind of throws this bomb out there and lets it see what happens, right? He's very succinct and direct, very economical in his word choice. And for him to end like this in verse 8, it's strange and odd, but it's very Mark. He's saying, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that's really the question for us. You're familiar with the women going to the tomb and seeing the angel and Jesus not being there and the following events of, of Peter and, and John running to the tomb and Jesus appearing to the other disciples and over 500 people at once and ascending into heaven. Jesus has been raised the dead. From the dead, just as he said, it's why we read that from Mark chapter 8, our scripture reading. Jesus says he would tear down the temple, that's his body, and raise it again in three days. Guess what he did? So we are left here with this question, what are we going to do? The women were told to go. They were first paralyzed with fear and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As we think about this resurrection account in Mark's gospel and his overall purpose of writing it, it comes down to this. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1.1, listen to this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We read that in Mark 1.1, the very beginning. Then Peter's confession in Mark 8, verse 29. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Jesus explains his own ministry as the suffering servant king in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then this culmination in Mark 15, 39 of the centurion. Mark writes, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. We spent over a year and a half in the gospel of Mark. You may be familiar with the resurrection We understand the miracles that Jesus did and how he gave his life on the cross as a ransom for many. But the culmination of Mark's gospel is a startling, stark, abrupt end with this question. What are we going to do with the resurrected Jesus? Three simple questions for us from this passage. Number one, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? You might say, well, Pastor Greg, I'm sitting in church this morning. <laughs> I was like, okay. I spent yesterday in my garage. That didn't make me a car. Right? Just because you're in church or go to a church doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't mean you believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus. And I'm not just talking about mental assent that at one time a man lived his name was Jesus and they wrote some books about him. But this belief is a deep seated belief of the head and the heart. It's understanding that this book, the Bible is true. That you can trust it. And that what it says about man and man's sin is true. How Adam and Eve fell in the garden of Eden, thousands of years ago, and sin entered into the world. And Because of our sin, we are separated from God. And through our best efforts and whatever we try, we cannot make our way back to God, but because of our sin, we are separated from Him, and death is our ultimate end. This book tells us how God in His grace and His love and His mercy sent His own Son to die on the cross, but yet to be raised again, demonstrating victory over sin and over that death and over all of God's enemies. You might say, great, well, we have forgiveness. Yes, we have forgiveness, and we have redemption in Jesus Christ if we believe. Not everyone who says that they believe in Christ believe. Jesus says that. And it's more than just knowing about Jesus. It's understanding and believing that He is who He says He is, and that He's the only way to be redeemed. He's the only way to have forgiveness of your sins. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet shall you live. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Not your name, not my name, not any church's name. There's only one name by which we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. This belief is more than just mental assent, but it's a trust. It's saying that I believe this, I understand this with all that I am. I understand I'm a sinner, and the only way of forgiveness and salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. You can go to church every Easter from here on out and if you don't believe in Jesus, it won't make any difference. The question is, do you believe in Jesus as the only way of forgiveness of your sins? The second question is for those of us who say, yes, I do believe in Jesus. I do. Well, the second question is this. Are you taking up your cross, denying yourself and following after him? Mark 8, verse 34 through 38 says this. It's in that same section where Jesus says that he will basically give up his life and then raise it again from the dead. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, if you truly follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Life is no longer about you, but it's about Jesus. And the resurrection has a huge part in that. Because if Jesus was still dead in the tomb, By all means, do not take up his cross and follow him, because he's still dead. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. Therefore, his call to follow him by taking up your cross, that's identifying with Jesus, denying yourself, saying, it's not about me, putting off sin and following after Christ, that is the call for you and I as a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are far too many people who say they believe in the resurrection, but they live like it didn't happen. They live for themselves. They live thinking that Jesus is still dead in the tomb or that how they live now doesn't matter. I'm not saying our works save us or how we live our life determines our standing before God, but rather, how we live demonstrates what we believe about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Are you taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following after him? Are you a true disciple, somebody who has identifying with Jesus and saying, this is who I believe in. This is what is the motivation and direction in my life. And third, are you telling others about this glorious Savior? The women were supposed to go and tell the disciples. Ultimately, they did, but first they were fearful. They were afraid. But are you telling others about this glorious Savior? As Jesus has truly been raised from the dead, why would you not want to tell others? the God that I served, the God that that I believe in, that I trust, that I have my entire being in, he's alive. We serve a God who is living, not dead. Every other religion, whatever sort of God that they have, dead. Dead, they are not alive. Jesus is a God of the living. Jesus himself is alive forever. Our God is alive. So why would you not tell others about this glorious Savior? The fact that he truly has defeated death for us. So what are you going to do now? In Mark's gospel, there is no indifferent response to who Jesus is. And for us today, it's the same. You either embrace him as your Savior and King and kneel before him, or you deny him. And ultimately, you will bring judgment upon yourself. That's what Jesus says. If you deny me, I will deny you when I come back with the angels in judgment. The offer now is this: is that the one we worship, the one we serve, the one that our lives should be about, is our risen Savior Jesus Christ, the suffering servant king, the one who has said. That he would give up his life and raise it up, and he has done this. The resurrection of Christ validates everything that Christ has said, done, preached, taught, mentioned, lived out. The resurrection validates the words of Christ. So, what are you gonna do? Will you respond in faith? Will your faith be challenged to grow? Or will you deny Christ and bring judgment? upon your soul father we thank you thank you for your word this morning we thank you for the hope of the resurrection and lord how that calls us to belief to respond lord help us now as we sing as we enjoy fellowship lord for perhaps someone here who does not know christ as their savior who is living a life that is about themselves rather than for you Lord, I pray that your spirit, your word would convict them of their sin and their need to trust in Christ, the glorious living Christ. Lord, for the believer here, may they be emboldened and encouraged knowing that everything that Christ has said has been validated because of his resurrection from the dead. That because he lives, we can face tomorrow, we can face the ups and downs, the difficulties of life knowing that he's alive. Lord, help us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow after him. Lord, help us do this now. We pray in your son's name. Amen. If you would please stand, we're going to sing the first verse and chorus of the song, Because He Lives.